0: My name's Hilary Johnson and I'd like to introduce Professor Christine Bigby. She's the Director of the Living with Disability Research Centre at La Trobe University. Christine is with us today to talk about group homes and the research in this area that spans many years. Chris, can you tell us about what group homes are and why it's important to find out about what makes a good group, group home.
1: Before I start, I just need to acknowledge the other people that have been involved in the research that I'm going to talk about. So, particularly Dr. Emma Bold and Julie Beadle Brown, Teresa Icono, and Lincoln Humphreys have all been part of this team at various times over the, the last 10, 15 years that we've been working on this. So group homes are really important because they've been really the only option for people with intellectual disabilities when either their parents died or they were no longer able to live in their family home for whatever reason. So ever since we started closing institutions, group homes have been the place where people with intellectual disabilities have lived if they're not living with their families. And there's about 17,000 people across Australia that, that live in group homes, and we're still building group homes. It's a very important form of of accommodation support for people with intellectual disabilities. And what is a group home, you might ask? (laughs) So what we mean by a group home is that it's shared supported accommodation. It's usually staffed 24 hours a day and between two to six people might live in a group home and they're usually ordinary houses in ordinary streets except you can generally tell because there's often a fire hydrant or there's more parking places. And, you know, our sense is that they're going to remain the dominant form of accommodation in the short to medium term for people with intellectual disabilities. So under the new NDIS world, they're calling them specialist disability accommodation.
0: Not group homes, they have a change of name.
1: So we're moving to a much more diverse range of different models. They're still often shared but no longer this idea of only being five or six people living in the same house. You might get two three-bedroom units together, which would be on the same piece of land, or you might get six single-bedroom apartments, which would have drop-in support, but would share that type of support. So there's lots of different models evolving, but still the
0: dominant model is is a six-bedroom group home. Um, And that would be the same as they used to be community residential units, CIUs years ago. Yep, that's what we called them
1: in Victoria for a long, long time when we closed the institutions.
0: These six-bedded group homes, then, are they better than other models of accommodation?
1: There's absolutely no question that they're much better than large institutions. There's a huge amount of work that demonstrates that. They're also much better than larger clusters of people who may live in separate accommodation, but may all live on the same space. So often we've seen 10, 15, 20 size hostels or separate housing all on the same piece of land. That's sort of clustered accommodation. So they're much better than that. And the evidence is still not particularly clear about the advantages of group homes compared to more individualized drop-in support or what we've known in the past as supported living where one or two people or three people might share a home, not need 24 hour support, but have drop in support. And certainly our research has shown that group homes and supported living situations are fairly on a par. Actually, they generally have fairly mediocre outcomes for people, but the advantage of supported living is that there is evidence that there's more choice and control that people have over who they live with and what they're able to do. There's a real sense of people that lived in group homes when they've moved out have have a sense of much greater choice and control when they live in supported living. When you actually look at the data, sometimes they don't have that much choice and control, particularly about staff, who comes into their home, but there's a sense of more
0: choice and control. And when you talk about, you said, the people that live in group homes are people with an intellectual disability. Can you explain a bit more about that? So, people with intellectual
1: disability are a very, very diverse group of people. They range from people with very severe and profound intellectual disabilities who find it really hard to do much for themselves without having uh, support to do that, to people with very mild intellectual disability who are able to do many things for themselves and just need support for decision making and troubleshooting quite often. And there's a very broad range of people that live in group homes. So people from mild intellectual disabilities to people with really severe and profound intellectual disabilities. And when we looked at the population of people in Australia in group homes, and then we we compared them to people that were in supported living, there's quite a significant overlap. So the people in group homes on average have more severe intellectual disabilities and the people in supported living on average have less severe disabilities, but there's about a 30% overlap in the middle, where people that are living in supported living, similar people to them are also living in group homes. So it's very hard to characterise who lives in group homes and who they're the most appropriate sort of a form of accommodation for. And what we see sometimes now is there's specialist group homes being built for people uh, with acquired brain injury and other types of long-term chronic illness. But what we've tended to do is, because of the particular needs of people with intellectual disabilities, have separate housing for them. It's quite difficult to mix somebody with an acquired brain injury with a group of people with intellectual disabilities. There's all sorts of reasons why that doesn't work well.
0: So there might be group homes of people with acquired brain injuries? but they tend to be separate group homes. Yeah. So are these people who are living together in a group home, it's obviously not at all like a shared house that I might have lived in when I was much younger. What sort of quality of life, can you have a good quality of life living with five other people with an intellectual disability?
1: The evidence suggests that it is possible to have a good life living in a group home. You can live quite an individualized life even if you live with other people, but What we know is that we can't say every single group home leads to a good quality of life. There's enormous variability. So you can have the same amount of funding, the same design, but you can have a very different quality of life for people. So one of the problems is there's variability between homes, even within the same organisation, the same organisation that's running them. There's variability between organisations. There's variability often from day to day, week to week, depending on on the staff that are on duty. But what we also know is that people with more severe severe and profound disabilities who actually need the most support are the people who have the worst quality of life in group homes. The group homes are primarily to support that group of people and yet they don't get the best type of support because they're not particularly demanding. From our research and from earlier research in the UK, but the research in Victoria shows that the level of engagement, which is being engaged in everyday things, can range from nine minutes in every hour to 52 minutes in every hour. Wow, nine minutes in every hour is not very much. That means that people are spending most of their time doing nothing, and Mm -hmm. that's not from choice, because they're tired out from having a really active day. It's because they rely on the support from staff to be engaged in things. So somebody with a profound intellectual disability needs a staff member to really cue them and to support them to be involved in anything that they might do around the home or to engage them in social interaction because they find it really hard
0: to do that themselves. Although we've moved from a large institutionalised model to small group homes, some of the small group homes may be very similar to a large institutional model. Yep. There's a really good piece of research
1: that Jim Mansell did many, many years ago that sort of suggests life in the worst group homes is not as good as life in the best institutions. So even though on average, you know, the levels of engagement, the better group homes are better than the best institutions, there's a lot of variability
0: between those things. You've talked about the difference there can be in different group homes, but obviously some group homes have good quality of life. What can organisations do to make sure their group homes are good group homes? If you look at the
1: literature, and we did a a fairly extensive, what we call a realist review a few years ago, there's a huge number of propositions out there about what might make a good group home. What are the things that make a difference? Things like the practice of staff, the practice of managers, the culture, the characteristics of the organisation, the money, the external environment and the individual characteristics of service users. But actually there's very little research on the huge number of factors that have been put forward as propositions. But the strongest and the most promising evidence to date comes from the research in the UK that shows without question, the things that makes the most difference are the design. So one to six people, no more than six people. And what we've seen is a bit of a creep of having larger group homes, dispersed home-like Buildings, having a mix of residents, not putting six residents together who all have challenging behaviour. And the most important thing in terms of the practice is staff frontline practice that reflects what we call an evidence-based practice called active support, that staff are trained in active support, both in the classroom so they know the theory and have hands-on training to practice putting that into operation. So active support is the thing that really makes the most difference to the quality of life outcomes for people that live in group homes. So it's the direct what staff do all day, every day, to provide assistance and
0: support to the people that are living in the group home. So in terms of a definition of active support, it's not just being active. It's much more than that. It's about supporting relationships and everything that they do or...
1: So active support, people often say, oh, yeah, we do that because it's about actively supporting people. But it's actually a very well-researched, evidence-based practice, which is defined as staff, or it can be family members too, enabling people with intellectual disabilities to engage in meaningful activities, so not just pretend activities, and social relationships and interaction. And it's, it's got a very well-worked-out set of elements that you can remember it by. So, the sort of slogan that we use for our training is, every moment has potential. So, you don't need to hang around and wait for things to happen. Things like washing up, doing the dishes, making beds, taking the rubbish out, answering the phone. All of those things have potential for people to be engaged in and it's the staff's job to actively support people to be engaged in those activities and to provide the necessary amount of assistance to people in order to be successful. So many people won't be able to do something all by themselves or to do all of a task, but they'll be able to do part of it. And so the role of the staff is to provide the necessary support so that they can be engaged in something successfully. And that might mean just setting out a set of tasks and prompting somebody how to make some sandwiches or where to get the food from, or it might actually mean providing hand-over-hand assistance to chop something up and to put it into a saucepan and to stir things up. It's tailored to each individual's level of ability and the particular context and
0: tasks that somebody might be doing. And now that would really increase there. It wouldn't be nine minutes an hour. It would be more like 50 minutes in every hour that they were actually doing something that was meaningful.
1: That's right. We know that people can be engaged for much, much, much higher percentage of the time. And that means that staff are providing assistance to for a much higher proportion of their time too, Mm. so that they're not spending their time doing household tasks, but they're spending time assisting and supporting people to be involved
0: in those tasks. Because there was some criticism, wasn't it, that sometimes group homes were like a motel model or something. Can you talk a bit about that? That's almost
1: like the opposite of active support, where the staff are waiting on people. The staff are doing all of the tasks on the assumption that, well, that's nice, we don't like doing housework, so why should people with intellectual disabilities? Or an assumption that people are too disabled in order to do those things. And often staff don't necessarily have the skill set to know how to support somebody with quite a severe intellectual disability to do something. Sometimes, you could have a piece of equipment where you might press a button and that will trigger the electric motor to start the mixer. If you haven't got the the skills to, to do it in a very fine way, you can sort of have a remote that will do that. So there's lots of useful types of very cheap adaptations you can make to enable people to be engaged too. So staff will often say, oh, we don't have that, so we can't do it. But on the other hand, there's also staff just do things for people because it's easier and it's quicker and they tend to treat the people they're supporting as children and that's how they behave at home. They provide support for their children by doing things for them and that's the mode that they have when they're providing support in group homes.
0: And how do you get staff then to understand what active support is or how long does it take to change people so that they can do this?
1: Well, the evidence suggests that it actually doesn't take long to become very a proficient practitioner in active support. You need to understand the theory behind it and the values and then you need some support to develop the hands-on skills. We know from the evidence that you need both classroom training and then follow-up hands-on training, but we also know there needs to be a range of other strategies to really embed active support in organisations. Otherwise, one lot of training for every staff member really isn't good enough because their practice sort of drops
0: off and new staff members come and they miss out on the training and so on. So if there is so much evidence about the effectiveness of active support, why is the quality of support in group homes so variable? Because we've found that it's really hard
1: to embed active support in services so that staff keep doing it every day and that whole team of staff are equipped to provide good support. There's evidence that a lot of organisations, both in Australia and in in the UK, have adopted active support, but few really are doing it consistently well. What we tend to see is that the quality declines over time. For example, in a UK study of 72 services, only 53% of service users were getting good active support, and we found very similar in an Australian study that we did of six organisations with 41 services, only half of service users were getting good active support even though uh, the organisation said they were doing it. What we've been doing for the last 10 years really is investigating what are the factors that predict active support what are the factors that will increase active support over time? So how do you embed it in services? What are the things that organisations should really focus on to get consistent quality of support? And we've assembled a large data sets from the 14 organisations that we've been working with. So we've got data sets that look at the same services over time that are longitudinal data sets, And we've got some cross-sectional ones that look at different services at different times and different services at one time. So what have you found? Well, we've found some really strong evidence about the factors that are important. And one of the most important ones is practice leadership. And what do you mean by practice leadership? Practice leadership tends to have lots of different meanings out in the field of disability. But what we mean by practice leadership is frontline practice leadership. So leadership by somebody who's close to the frontline, who knows the service users, who knows the staff and is a skilled practitioner. And that somebody should have five primary functions. They should try and support the staff to focus all of their work on the quality of life of service users, not to get sidetracked into focusing on paperwork and things that are less central to people's quality of life. Practice leaders also need to focus on trying to allocate and organise how staff use their time. So that means that at the beginning of every shift, the practice leader or whoever is leading that particular shift needs to allocate who's going to work with who, what area of the house staff are going to work in so that staff have a clear plan for the day. And that means too that the people they're supporting have a really clear idea of what might be happening on that day. Clearly, organising staff has to be flexible as well so that they can respond to things that happen in the moment. But having a plan for the day, both staff and the people that are being supported, is really critical to good practice. The third element of practice leadership is around coaching staff, observing staff, giving staff feedback about their practice in an ongoing way. So the practice leader needs to spend time with staff, watching what they're doing, providing them with positive feedback and constructive feedback, supporting them to reflect on their practice. And allied to that, the practice leader needs to provide regular one-to-one supervision with all staff to really focus about what skills they need to improve, what they're doing really well and how they can make that better, how they can model their skills to other staff. The last element of practice leadership is around supporting teamwork. So trying to ensure that all members of a staff team provide consistent support to the people that they're supporting. So supporting the team to work together by holding regular team meetings, regular staff development regular reflection on what's happening is that
0: sort of last element of practice leadership. So getting good practice leadership sounds quite challenging, but are there other things that make active support work well?
1: There are, and we've managed to find uh, some of the ones that are really important and I'll talk a bit about each of them, not in too much detail because we could spend half an hour really on each one. The first one, the first evidence that we've found is that people who have higher support needs consistently get poorer active support. There's no reason for that to happen, but it consistently happens. So what that indicates is that when we do training in active support and when practice leaders are leading and observing practice, There's a real need to focus practice on the individual and tailor the type of support that you provide to the individual's support needs, the level of needs that they have and the type of support. Active support will look different whether you're providing it to somebody with very high support needs or somebody with lower support needs. And what we found is that staff are consistently not flexible enough in adapting active support to each individual that they work with. So unfortunately... If you have a higher level of adaptive behaviour, if you're more able, you're more likely to get good support. The second factor is around the size of service. So we know that active support works better and staff are more likely to use good active support in services where there's six or less service users. Clearly, the more staff that are trained in active support is related to the quality of active support and its provision. Another interesting factor that people hadn't thought about a lot before, which is related to the issue about levels of adaptive behaviour, is the mix of service users in a house. There's quite a lot of evidence that suggests you shouldn't put six people who all have challenging behaviour together in a house, even though that does happen quite often. But what we've found is that the span of adaptive behaviour skills is also an issue. So, If you have people who have very severe and profound intellectual disability mixed with people who are much more able, then it doesn't work particularly well because you're expecting staff to have a broad span and adapt to people with very, very different support needs. So what our evidence suggests is that you need to have people who have more severe disabilities or people who have milder disabilities. And if you have too great a mix of those people, in a service, that's not a good indicator for having good levels of support. One of the other interesting things is the attitudes and perceptions of staff. So if staff are really positive about the quality of management in the organisation where they're working, then that's an indicator that there's likely to be better active support. So the sort of relationships that staff have to senior managers and to frontline managers and the confidence that they have in them seems to be a really important factor. There's two other factors which are related to the organisations. One which is about the longer they've been implementing active support, the more likely the active support is to be of high quality. But we think there's a plateau of around five years. And interestingly, in the current climate, Organisations that manage a smaller number of group homes, that tends to be a predictor of having good quality active support. And What we're seeing at the moment is the sort of amalgamation of organisations, so they're getting bigger, so there's more organisations managing more services really than ever before. And the last set of factors are related to the senior leadership in the organisation, There's a lot of organisational literature that suggests the importance of coherency of values across an organisation and having all the processes and procedures lined up so that everybody's on the same page. We spent a lot of time interviewing senior leaders in organisations and also looking at a lot of the paperwork that they had. The four factors that were most important in building good active support. And if you had these things in place, that was characteristic of having good active support. The first one was around senior leaders, and that's all the senior leaders across the organisation, understanding what active support is, understanding the significance of practice and prioritising practice, no matter what else was going on in the organisation. And it was very clear that that might happen at one point in time, but in some organisations the senior leaders get distracted and other things take priority, and so practice sort of goes on to the back burner. We also saw that senior leaders supporting the significance of practice leadership and putting resources into the development of practice leaders, into thinking and and supporting that as a very important layer within their organisation. And allied to that, what we've seen is lots of organisations experimenting with doing practice leadership in different ways. But it's very clear from looking at our analysis that you need to organise practice leadership so that it's close to the front line, so that the practice leaders know the people who are being supported, they know the staff and can regularly both formally observe staff but also see them as a drop-in just as part of their everyday work. So having one practice leader who's responsible for leading the practice in 10 group homes really doesn't work. You need to be able to have regular contact with the staff and the people that are being supported. So putting practice leadership close to the front line Having a span of responsibility that's probably no more than two or three houses is really important. And also concentrating those tasks of practice leadership together with other frontline management tasks seems to be an important factor. What we found was it's the values and the coherence of what the senior leaders do and think about practice and how they organise practice leadership rather than anything to do with the paperwork that they write about practice and the processes that they have in place, which really didn't figure in any of our analysis at all, even though we spent a long time checking that and saying, well, everybody else thinks paperwork's important, but our analysis shows that it's, it's not really important at all. It's the values and the behaviour and the reinforcement that senior leaders provide to good practice in their actions rather than in what they write down because actually the work of Claire Quillam shows that most people at the
0: front line don't read many of those organisational documents at all. This is really interesting in terms of the number of features that all interplay, but one of the things you haven't mentioned is the sort of casualisation of the workforce and turnover. Is that less where good active support happens? Do people tend to stay in the organisations? There's some evidence from the UK that active support is
1: very motivating for staff and that where you have good active support staff are likely to be more satisfied and less likely uh, to leave their employment. But we don't have that evidence here. But what we do think is that if you've got good practice leadership in place and therefore you've got good teamwork and you've got regular training happening in the organisation, then if you do have turnover, that turnover shouldn't affect the quality of the practice because new staff are coming in to staff teams where there's already good practice and where people are reinforcing each other's practice, where you're employing casuals they're coming into a service with an expectation of the type of support they should be providing when they come and work in your organisation. So setting those expectations from senior managers and from practice leaders about the type of practice that's expected, that compensates for these issues about turnover and casualisation of the workforce. So what are your final thoughts about the challenges for service providers? Well, I think from the data that we've got over the last 10 years, it's really clear that good practice is really fragile. Very few of our organisations could demonstrate over a long period of time every year that they were delivering good active support in the majority of their services. So they might reach it one year and then it might drop off. And it seems that senior managers are likely to get distracted. There's many competing priorities. So trying to stay focused as an organisation, focusing the leadership, focusing the board to reinforce that significance of practices is one way. And I think some of the key questions are how can organisations and boards of management and directors try and ensure that when they appoint uh, senior leaders that those people understand practice and see the importance of it and that in their structures there is the provision for regular training and induction of all staff, there's refreshment for staff And I think in terms of the new NDIS funding regime, that there needs to be funding in the quotes and in the provision of funding for individuals to train strong practice leaders and to train all staff on a regular basis in active support. If we don't have that line of practice leaders and we don't have the funding for that, then the quality is really going to drop off and be really variable. So I think it's a story about... Focusing on practice, and that's what's going to deliver good, consistent active support to the people that are being supported, which will result in them having a better quality of life. I mean, active support isn't the answer to everything, but it's actually the answer to a significant portion of people's quality of life. If we can get that right, then we're well on the way to people having a better quality of life than they've had in the past.
0: Thank you, Chris. That's um, a great summary of active support and practice leadership and how we might move forward to make sure people do have a good quality of life. In terms of your research, are you looking at any particular aspects in the future related to this? Well, I guess our next set of questions, having identified the features that are associated
1: with good active support, then the question is, well, how do you make sure those features are there and part of organisations and One of the interesting things at the moment is the experimentation that's going on around different ways of thinking about practice leadership, different ways of organising it. And we're also really interested in how boards, directors and senior managers, how do they have to behave? How can we get them on the same page around practice leadership? So that sort of organisational level input is beginning to interest us. And the other strand of research is clearly about culture. I mean, we know from, from the research that I did earlier in my career that culture is very important and differs within services, and that's another important factor that influences the quality of what staff do. And that's the work that Lincoln Humphreys is doing at the moment, really trying to understand what's the significance of culture, how do you measure it, and then how do you influence culture which can clearly influence the sort of teamwork that's happening and, and the way staff do the things that they do. It's, it's culture's so important and we know,
0: still know very little about how that influences the quality of services. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Um, I think you've given us some good ideas for looking at future podcasts as well, so I'm hoping that we can revisit some of your ideas later in the year. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. And if people want to find out more about some
1: of our research, then you should go to the website at the Living With Disability Research Centre at La Trobe University. Um, there's lots of resources there. The training, free online training for active support, Every Moment Has Potential. Um, and we're in the process of developing an online training set of modules around practice leadership. And much of our research is also written in academic journals and in some more
0: easier-to-use formats. You can find the ACID Research to Practice podcast wherever you source your podcasts. This episode was produced by Sophia Tipping, Hilary Johnson and Buffy Gorilla. Marketing support was done by Ben Pawson. And a big thank you to Living with Disability Research Centre at La Trobe University. Keep up to date with all things ACID on Twitter via the handle at ACID underscore Limited, on Facebook via ACID, Asn.au. Or better still, become a member and enjoy access to a number of publications and benefits. Just go to our website acid.asn.au.